Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversation with Scott Miller. That's me, I'm your host. I have the honor and privilege of both hosting Franklin Covey's On Leadership Weekly podcast, where now we have this new podcast interviewing people from all facets of the C-Suite, whether you are a CMO, COO, CIO, CTO, or anything with the letter C in front of it. Some great interviews over the last many episodes. And today we're going to take a little bit of a pivot. Today I am interviewing one of the senior partners from McKinsey, Carolyn Dewar, who is the lead author with her colleagues Scott and Vic on a new book out called CEO Excellence. This is a manuscript, not the actual book itself. The tagline is the six mindsets that distinguish the best leaders from the rest. Carolyn is the senior partner focused on both CEO and board excellence. And this book is going to sweep the world by storm, both for people that have earned their way into the C-suite, but those who perhaps are also on their journey to it. Carolyn, welcome to today's conversation. Super. Thank you so much for having me. So Carolyn, I don't yet have the actual physical book in my hand. It was released today. Mine, I'm guessing, is arriving today or tomorrow. I have had your manuscript for several months where I've been pouring over it, as have our CEO and board and chairman. Maybe perhaps you could hold up a copy so that our guests and listeners and viewers can all see. Excellent. (laughs) Beautiful. Are you sleeping with it under your pillow? You should be. (laughs) Well, this is a soft cover, so, you know, it's nice and soft. It is, it is. Carolyn, thanks for joining us. Before we get into some of the insights of the research that you and your co-authors have done exhaustively over what really separates the best CEOs from perhaps just those that are average or mediocre, would you take a few moments and talk about your own career journey and what has qualified you to be the lead author with Scott and Vic on this book? Sure, absolutely. It's been a a really wonderful journey. And as you say, the book is both the culmination of a lot of our research, right? As a firm, you think about all of the clients we serve globally and our own individual careers. But I think what makes it most exciting too is that we interviewed 67 of the world's best CEOs in the world. So you don't just have to take it from us. You can can take it from all of them and their experiences and sharing their wisdom. Personally, I've been at McKinsey & Company for 22 years. I lead our CEO and board excellence work. So have the privilege really of looking across industries, across geographies, and gathering that pattern recognition of what really is this mythical role and what separates those who do it really well. Carolyn, let's get tactical. Speak to the definition of perhaps the best. How do you define the best from average? I'm going to ask you in a moment to talk about what they do on a day-to-day basis, but kind of high level, how do you define best? Absolutely. And I think when we embarked on this book, part of the reason was there are a lot of individual biographies about CEOs, and there's a lot of books on leadership, and there's even some great research and analysis on CEOs in general, right, on how they manage their calendar, their time, those sorts of things. But what we hadn't found was a really data-driven analysis of for CEOs who outperform, who are they? And then more importantly, what do they do differently? And so we put it through a pretty rigorous screen. We took the 4,000 CEOs who have led Fortune 2000 companies in the last, in this century, and we filtered them for top to quintile excess TRS performance compared to their peers. So that normalized for the fact that some industries results are better than others. So how do you do relative to your peer set? You had to have been in role for at least six years. 
because we wanted to make sure you'd been in the role long enough to have to eat your own cooking and live with some of the decisions you'd made. And then we filtered for important filters around reputation and other risk factors to make sure that we had folks that we really thought, wow, these folks have outperformed and what can we learn from them? Carolyn, again, fairly tactical. Talk to us about what the research says the best CEOs do on a day-to-day basis, literally day-to-day versus average CEOs. Right. And there's so many, there are a few layers to that question, right? First of all is what is the CEO job anyway and why is it so different? And that was job number one to answer. And as we spoke to all of these 67 CEOs, there was remarkable consistency in terms of what is the job for any CEO. And it's really six things. You have to set direction, you have to manage your organization, you have to get your team operating well from the top, you interact with the board, external stakeholders, and then managing your own time and energy. So any any CEO is spinning those six plates at once, which is the first part that makes the role so challenging, right? It's incredibly broad and complex. I think the question we were trying to answer is against that role, what do the best CEOs do differently? And there's really two lenses. The first is they recognize that their role is not to be perfect at each of those six things. It's to be the ultimate integrator across them and to manage the complexity and interdependence across all of those things. I love a quote from Satya Nadella at Microsoft who said, part of the reason the role is so lonely is because no one else sees what you see. No one below you sees everything you see. No one above you sees everything you see. You're the one that is managing across so many dimensions. That's the first piece. The second piece, which we can dive into more, is this notion of mindset, right? So against those six roles, the best CEOs have a different mindset for how they think about what their unique role is in setting direction, in managing the org, in the board, all of those things. And from those unique mindsets, a thousand behaviors stem. So if you think about the role right, that's much easier than trying to copy the behaviors you see of many other people. Carolyn, talk about mindset some more. Do you find that the best CEOs have a learning growth mindset? They have a curiosity or is there a level still of hubris where they kind of have a, well, I'm here for a reason, so I know best. What's the balance there? And what does the research show around how the best CEOs relate to a learning mindset? Absolutely. I think it was one of the the prevalent mindsets that jumped out across all of the roles. The CEOs realized that, and I think all of us do, it's so complex and so broad, you can't possibly know it all. And I do think that's one of the shifts that's happened over the last few decades in the role, right? You now need to balance having the confidence and the facts to make bold decisions, while at the same time having the humility to ask questions and bring everyone else along because it takes a village to make these roles successful. There were specific mindsets against each of their jobs, but I do agree this learning mindset is just such a broad theme that came out in spades in all of the discussions. You mentioned earlier that one of the six aspects mindsets is managing your time and energy. Uh, Later today, I'm having the privilege of interviewing Ariana Huffington, who we all know, of course, as the founder of Huffington Post and uh, a, a very successful media entrepreneur. And then she had, of course, a health scare, and she actually pivoted her life quite significantly and now is sort of one of the world's chief evangelists around life balance and managing your time and energy and the value of sleep. In my experience, there is often an inverse correlation in high-performing CEOs 
and how much sleep they need or claim to need or model in their own behavior what they think others should need. And I wonder what you've learned about how CEOs do in fact manage their time and energy. I'm guessing there's a strata of CEOs that thrive on and live on minimal sleep and minimal rest and minimal life balance. And I'm guessing there's a higher strata for those who perhaps have experience or the maturity or the wisdom from realizing how important that is. Take that wherever you want to take it. Right. I think it's such an important topic and two pieces that we really explored with the CEOs. One is no doubt the role can be all-consuming. It is a tr- you know has tremendous both scrutiny and breadth. And it, 80% of the CEOs we talk to work both days on the weekend at some point and work on vacation. That just is what it is. That being said, it's, a, it's not a marathon or a sprint. Those who we talked to said, you have to learn to manage a series of sprints, right? You have to manage both your own energy and frankly, the energy of your organization in these series of S-curves, right? We've all felt it during the pandemic where everyone has been in sprint mode, right? The adrenaline's been pumping, we've had to get through it. And now CEOs are asking, how do I help my organization kind of step back, take a breath, gather its reserves to be able to sprint again? And I think both at the organization level and individually, we heard that from folks. They all had their own practices of finding opportunities to build their energy reserves, whether it's in their day, right? So some folks manage literally their day to make sure they have moments of brightness, meetings they enjoy, things that give them energy, people that give them energy throughout the day. It doesn't mean you don't do the work, but we all know there are certain things that are draining and certain things are energizing. And they're very mindful about weaving those throughout their day, their week, their month. And so they never get so run down that they can't, they can't keep going. I'm- I think the other piece that's related, and we should talk a little bit about it, is the notion of your to-be list being as important as your to-do list. So these truly excellent CEOs were just as intentional and deliberate about how they showed up, what they role modeled, the behaviors and the attitude and the characteristics that they were showing to their organization, as much as they were the day-to-day. I think Michael Fisher at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, literally on his calendar where he has all his meetings for the day, he writes down, how am I gonna be today? And it's not that he's not himself and not authentic, but he looks at maybe he has a town hall or a tough regulatory meeting, how he's going to present himself and show up the energy in the room matters as much to set the tone as anything that he does. You know, it's ironic you say that. For, gosh, nearly 25 years, our CEO was a man named Bob Whitman. He was both the CEO and chairman of the board. Now he has moved into the non-executive chairman of our board. We have a new CEO, Paul Walker. And for decades, Bob Whitman had a white index card in his shirt pocket. And he never showed it to us, but on it, He told us it was the key roles in his life, husband, CEO, parent, grandparent, friend, and he had what it looked like to be great in each of those roles. And he wrote it down, and it kind of varied from week to week, and it kind of grounded him in every town hall, every board meeting, every investor call, including when it was a time to leave work because his grandkids were in town, and he knew what it was going to look like to be a great grandparent. I also love your comment around... I think you called it moments of brightness. Is that what you called it? Mm-hmm. Because that's valuable whether you're in the C-suite or whether you're just out of college, or whether you're in a managerial track. We all have to know what are our peaks, our troughs, and our recoveries, our circadian cycle. And we know the people that energize us and the people that deplete us or the ideas or the projects. And 
It's valuable, is it not, to manage your schedule and to spread those things out to maintain and increase your energy because there are, there are multiple sprints within the day. There are sprints within the week and the month and the quarter and the year, are there not? Absolutely. Right. And this, this misnomer that there's work is draining and outside of work is energizing is too simple. As you say, for me, doing laundry is draining, right? Being at work with some colleagues I really love is energizing. And so recognizing that in yourself and managing your, your time really is what enables you to go the distance, right? It's, it's too hard of a job. All of these jobs are uh, to make them a slog, right? If, it, if you're not having fun, you're not going to do well. Carolyn, let's pivot to another quote in the book. I'm going to read, actually, from the book. You said, one of the things we've noticed in talking with CEOs is that their organization's productivity level is 10 times what it was before the crisis. I'm guessing you're meaning the pandemic, if not more. CEOs are not only thinking 10 times faster and bigger and bolder, but moving their organizations to achieve extraordinary things that perhaps might have been considered impossible in the time frame before. Do you think that productivity is sustainable? And, and maybe you can expand on that. What has happened during the pandemic that has accelerated most organizations' productivity, according to you, 10 times? Right. This is one of the shifts. We've noticed a couple of shifts in the CEO's role and mindset in learnings in the pandemic. One is this notion of, you know, we've now witnessed what organizations can do when they have to, right? You've had five-year digital strategy suddenly get accomplished in three months, or entire supply chains and business models pivot in a matter of weeks because they had to. No, of course, it's not healthy for any of us to operate at that level of adrenaline all the time. I think your question is the right one, which was, what is it in how our organizations worked and how we led that enabled that to happen so quickly? And do we want to apply those, those learnings other places? So a couple of things that, that changed, right? Leadership teams were meeting much more frequently in short bursts and making quick decisions. Now they had to make decisions with imperfect information, but that rapid cycle of test and learn, test and learn, let's make a call and see what happens, ended up you know, being a real unlock. Another is you know, the hierarchy in many ways went away or at least was challenged in some of those periods, right? We weren't waiting for recommendations to bubble up through seven layers the CEO or the senior leaders were calling directly down to the people at the front line doing the work and saying, what do you need? How can we help? What will it take? And that rapid feedback cycle and decisioning really unlocked a lot. And I think the last piece is this notion of, we've now shown that it's possible. And so we can't say we can't do it. I think about Roger Bannister running the four minute mile, right, way back a yeah. hundred years ago. No one had done it till that point. Once he ran the four, in fact, it had been scientifically shown that the human body couldn't amass enough muscle to make it happen. He did it. He ran the four-minute mile. In the 18 months after he ran it, something like 16 or 17 people also did it. The only thing that had changed was that he had shown it was possible. And, and I do think it's an exciting challenge for us all to say, what were some of those limiting mindsets or orthodoxies that were getting in our way? And, and could we challenge them? in how we work. Carolyn, much of your research was also focused on the role that CEOs have with their boards of directors, whether it's a public company or a Fortune 10,000 or a Fortune 10 company. This is a complicated role that a lot of more junior people don't understand, the role that boards of directors play, all the committees and the governance and SEC things if you're public. 
What, um, what are some of the insights you learned about the relationship, the interplay? This is who the board, you know, the board hires and terminates the CEO. The CEO serves at the pleasure of the board. Talk about what you've learned around that interaction. Absolutely. To be honest, this is one in my mind that stuck out as the, the most surprising difference between these truly top echelon of CEOs and typical CEOs that, that we work with. The, the common wisdom is the board is something to be managed, right? Something, yes, they have to manage risk. You need to bring them along. But for the most part, there's something to be managed. These CEOs had a very different view. They saw the board, the directors as, how do I help the directors to help the business? How do I help them help me? There's this incredibly valuable resource that if managed well and brought along and educated and really engaged in a dynamic way, they can be some of the, the cheapest and best advisory that you can have, right? And so the way they enacted that is by being radically transparent with their boards. So I think about both Jamie Dimon, who has his since we last met, Every time he sits down with the board one-on-one, -on -one, he pulls out a piece of paper that he's written. Hey, since we last met, here's the things for you to know. Hubert Jolie very much, again, talked about you know, that transparency of not hiding bad news, sharing the good news. And when you've done that over time, you've built a level of trust and engagement and knowledge with the board that when you really need them, when there's a tough situation or a big decision you're bringing to them, they know that you've been straight and that they've been you know, brought along and they know enough to be able to weigh in and truly be helpful. It, it was quite a difference than the notion of this is something to be managed and you know, dare I say even kept at bay. Let's transition to the topic of culture. Obviously something Franklin Covey has a point of view on and you know, four decades of expertise on. You know, culture has long since moved from a soft, ethereal thing to a hardcore criteria that most employees, colleagues, consider when they join a firm or when they leave a firm, right? They, people quit bad bosses and corrupt cultures, we like to say. How would you define culture from your interviews with these nearly 70 high-performing CEOs, and what is the role and responsibility the CEO has in an organizational culture? Absolutely. It's funny you chose those words because the mindset we named on how CEOs think about culture and organization broadly is that they treat the soft stuff with as much rigor as the hard stuff, right? These excellent CEOs take it very seriously, not just because of how it attracts and retains employees, but because how they know culture drives performance and drives results and innovation. And so the best CEOs are very clear-headed about the culture that they need to create. They measure it, they manage it, they're actively involved. And in many cases, they're quite focused on a singular cultural shift that they're trying to drive. I know we all have many employee engagement surveys and there's many attributes of culture that matter, but these CEOs, almost to a T, to a had one or two, one real theme that they thought this is gonna be our unlock. You think about Satya Nadella at Microsoft and growth mind. Set. At the time, when he came out with that as their big cultural shift, it was still early days. It wasn't you know, in the popular lexicon. But he had recognized that their, um, their sort of limited mindset was causing people not to be open to new ideas, to be competitive with one another, to be worried about fighting over the pie rather than expanding the pie. And we all know that how that story played out, right? He went hard on growth mindset both role modeling it himself, admitting when he made mistakes and there were some visible ones that he used as a teaching moment. 
and held his leadership team to account. And if they weren't behaving that way, it didn't matter how great their performance was, he wouldn't tolerate it. And cascading it all the way down in the organization, really investing in what that would look like. He took it personally. Carolyn, pull from some of the sages, maybe perhaps the more wise CEOs that had been in her or his role for a longer tenure of time. What surprising advice or insight did they impart to you that you would then share with perhaps new CEOs, rising people into the C-suite that might set up their tenure, their legacy, their contribution better than had they not had the sage advice? I think almost all of the long-term CEOs reflected on how much they had learned in the role, right? And, and we're you know, very happy to pass on advice, but also recognize everyone else is, is on their own journey here. I think some of the advice for what I wish I'd done early in tenure. One, really invest in your listening tour, right? This notion whether you're an external hire and this or, or promoted from within, this applies to any C-suite role, really using those first few weeks and months to listen, to build relationship, to learn, and to take a pretty stark, fresh-eyed view on what it is you've inherited, right? Making sure everyone has a shared fact base of this is where we are. Here's our threats and here's our opportunities. So that was one piece, a real listening tour and a real fresh-eyed view. But then fairly quickly pivoting to having a simple vision for where you're going to go and working with your leadership team on where are we going, why, how are we going to get there, what does that look like, so that everyone has a shared vision of, of what it takes. You know, the CEO can't be the only one to hold that. They need to bring along the organization because that's really who's going to make it happen. And I think the last piece really started where, where you started, which is you know, hanging on to that humility. It is this paradox that CEOs are juggling. They need to be seen as confident. They need to make bold decisions and act quickly. At the same time, they need to maintain the humility that they're still learning and that they're still asking for help. They're still taking in new information that can shift their view. One CEO mentioned that if you get to a point where you think you know all the answers, you probably time for you to leave the role, right? Because you've stopped learning and growing um, and that will stagnate both you and your organization. Carolyn, were there any really surprising insights that you saw as a red thread, so to speak, that, you know, uh, these CEOs organized their town hall this way or they always took lunch or they all used a paper device to capture notes. Was there anything that maybe was arcane, but anybody listening or watching today could learn from that would improve their brand, reputation, competence, career, income, influence, any of that? I think there, there were thousands of kind of micro habits that yeah. we noticed. And I think a lot of it came down to how they thought about the role. Everyone will come up there with their own kind of micro habits, but to a T, all the CEOs we're thinking, what is the work that only I can do? Mm. So against all of these different aspects of their role, they're too busy to try and do anything else, right? So what is the unique value add that I have in this moment? Yeah. Is it that I need to meet the one that makes the call and the big decision? Because otherwise no one else is. Am I the one who has to paint the aspiring bold picture that reframes the game of what winning means, right? I think about um, um, Ajay Banga at MasterCard, right? When he joined 10 years ago, it was, it was this myopic view of beating the competition, right? Beating Visa. And he looked around and said, 80% of the world is still using cash. Isn't the game we're really playing actually how do we kill cash? 
It's a total reframe and expansion of what could be possible. So each of these CEOs in their moment kind of picked what's the thing that I need to do to unlock. Um, and it showed up in, in many, many ways from the broad town hall to the personal, but that was always the question. What's the thing only I can do? Everything else you can delegate. Carolyn, on the heels of the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter and social justice and the comeuppance, if you will, around corporate responsibility with uh, diversity, inclusion, equity, what is the CEO's role in particular on building their organization to reflect their client base, the demographics of their hiring pool, their geographics? What, 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 what is their role in making sure that that's being done in a way that builds the culture of their organization? This is a biggie, right? And I think it's one that's really keeping CEOs up at night, right? The scrutiny and the social contract is evolved where, you know, gone are the times that you're only solving for, for your shareholders, right? You have to be considering all of the stakeholders. And frankly, your employees and your customers are gonna make their buying and employment decisions based on whether or not they feel you as a CEO and your company is in line with their values. It's quite a big shift. And I think people are still getting their heads around it. I think those who are navigating it well are starting to understand this difference between, you know, base level one is making sure what happens in your own four walls is pristine, right? And there's a lot of talk about purpose and values, but the CEOs really say, what do I stand for? What does our company stand for? And how do we make sure step one in our day-to-day employment practices, operations, all of those things, we're being true to those values, whether it's diversity, ESG, all of the various things. That's kind of job number one, right? Job number two, and where it's starting to expand is outside of our four walls. Where do I as a CEO or we as a company, where should we take a stand? Where should we weigh in on external debate, external policy, right? And I think CEOs are still finding their way there. I think where it's you know, clearly related to their company, it makes sense as it gets further afield. I think that's something they're all still navigating, right? Should I take a stand on a values-based issue, nothing to do with my company, but that I know my employees and customers are looking at me to say, are you, are you in line with what I believe? I think that's one that we're all navigating together. Beautifully said. Uh, Carolyn, our last few minutes, let's talk to people outside of the CEO office. So let's talk about people that maybe are in the C-suite and they're trying to become the CEO. Maybe they're in the EVP, SVP, VP role and they're trying to launch their way in this company, the one they're in, or perhaps another company and move their way up to become the CEO. As you aggregate the totality of your research and interviews and insights and your own role as a senior practice leader and partner over the C-suite and CEOs in particular, what is advice you would give to someone that's on their career journey? And their journey is they want to become a CEO, perhaps as of their own company or the company they're in or a company they don't know yet. What are some of the competencies and character traits that people should be integrating into their brand early on in their career that will accelerate their path to the CEO office and make sure once they're there that they crush it? Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, we heard from a number of CEOs, including I'm thinking of Mary Barra at GM, who was saying, in a way, the best way to do it is not to be super focused on trying to become a CEO, although I know maybe that that's not realistic, but a lot of the lessons learned apply in whatever role you're in. So how do you be your best self and your best leader in whatever role you're in? 
and then you know over time that that expands but this notion of thinking boldly taking seriously the soft stuff and really thinking about culture and and the effectiveness of your team managing all of your stakeholders internal and inter external not as a problem or something to keep at bay but as resources available to you that you can harness to actually help advance whether it's the the function or the business that you're leading and being really mindful of who you are as a leader you know the the classic of at your retirement party or if you were to walk into a cafe and be a fly on the wall with your friends talking about you what would you want them to say about who are you as a leader and then if you walk next door into a cafe where it's a bunch of your cynics your detractors what would they say and how does that feel right you will only you know kind of how you're intending to lead people only see what they can see right so being very intentional about how you're showing up every day and to use your phrase the leadership brand that you're projecting i think we can all we can all take lessons learned from that uh, last question. I guess I probably could answer this and guess at the answer. What are the two or three things that CEOs do poorly, wrong, that either implodes their company, implodes their brand, contributes to their termination, right? We see these you know, big implosions. They all seem to, yeah. seem to congeal around certain behaviors. What happens that goes wrong that we all can avoid? Mm, that is a great question. I mean, one cross-cutting theme that you can imagine is when when ego gets in the way of mm. the facts and judgment, mm. right? And and you see that play out in in multiple places. Even when we talk to CEOs about M and A and doing big deals, right? One of the Latam CEOs said, "You can't get so enamored by the idea of doing the big deal that you're not willing to walk away when the facts don't add up, mm. right?" And you can see that that habit can repeat over and over again. You know. Again, I think it was Ajay Banga who said to remember when he walks into the office every day, people are talking to the chair. They're not talking to him, like physically the chair, right? This notion of you're, you're a steward in a role for a, for a period of time and your job is to leave the company better than when, when you started. This isn't about you. Um, it's about creating value and managing for all of your stakeholders. And that is a, that is a tough line to walk, right? The whole thing be, can become very enamored, right? You're surrounded by people telling you that you're great, right? And so how do you keep your head yeah. in all of that? Yeah. Reminds me of a lot of the research from Dr. Susan David, the Harvard Medical School psychologist. She has a book called Emotional Agility. And one of the insights is to make sure that in any role in life, we're differentiating between what the facts and the data say and our emotions, our opinions, and our feelings and our experiences. You're right. Hubris can be you know, something we all deal with. Carolyn, thank you for your time today, along with your colleagues, Scott and Vic. The new book is called CEO Excellence. Now out, the six mindsets that distinguish the best leaders from the rest. Congrats on a masterpiece book. Masterpiece book. Thank you for joining us today and pouring into our viewers and listeners. Best of success to you and your co-authors. Super. Thank you so much, Scott. Wonderful to be here. And thank you. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-suite.